Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Hillary. And this is the Probably Not Lupus podcast, where we discuss medical mysteries and entertain you with curious and uncommon case studies. These are based on mostly true stories collected from real people, history, journals, and fellow doctors. To protect privacy, names, dates, and locations may have been altered. Get ready for your medical mystery bolus. Probably Not Lupus is a show about our favorite medical mysteries. Nothing the hosts say should be taken for medical advice or opinion. We are not experts, nor are we journalists. It's just for fun. So enjoy. Jesse was only seven years old when he first experienced difficulty swallowing. Over the years, this developed into increasing chest pain and weight loss, and several doctors couldn't provide any reason as to what was causing his discomfort. It wasn't until more than 20 years later, when Jesse himself was in medical school, that he finally realized what was wrong. Listen now as a medical doctor outlines his experience as a patient with EOE. Welcome back yet again to another episode of the Probably Not Lupus podcast. Welcome. We're so excited. Episode five. We're still counting. We're halfway through season one. I think we're going to count every episode. We got it. Maybe in season two, we'll stop counting, but at least till (laughs) 10, we're going to keep counting. Keep it on brand. So today we are going to talk about eosinophilic esophagitis which is also abbreviated as EOE, and we will refer to it as EOE from now on. It is clinically characterized by symptoms that relate to esophageal dysfunction. So eosinophils are a type of white blood cell that are frequently involved in allergies and asthma. So when this type of cell builds up in nasal mucosa, you get allergic rhinitis, builds up in the lungs, you get asthma. So ultimately what this is, is a buildup of those cells in a place where it shouldn't be. And then it creates inflammation leading to the symptoms described. And EOE is a relatively new condition diagnosis, as we will hear later in our interview with Dr. Jesse Goodall. It has been reported in several countries in both North and South America, as well as Europe and Asia. But interestingly enough, there has been no published reports of this condition in countries in Africa. Another thing that's interesting about this condition is it has a strong male dominance, meaning it affects males more than it affects females. And we don't really know why this is, but it may be due to a genetic defect in the X chromosome. And as you know, men only have one X chromosome because their other chromosome is a Y. And so if that one X chromosome is affected, they're far more likely to express the genetic defect than a female who has two X chromosomes and is partially protected against defects on that X chromosome. Another interesting fact about EOE, up to 80% of people who have EOE also have other allergic diseases. So Jesse's going to bring up this idea of atopy, which is the triad of asthma, eczema, and allergies. And he has a couple of those. So Jesse does have asthma and he does have a lot of allergies. So it is interesting that he is also afflicted by this condition, EOE. 
So we'll get into the interview now. We'll speak with Dr. Jesse Goodall, MD, in his experience as not only a medical doctor, but as a patient suffering from EOE. I should start by getting your name and your personal pronouns, please. My name is Dr. Jesse Goodall, uh, MD, and my pronouns are uh, he, him. Uh, there's probably one more. <laughs> His. His. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, and we're here to talk today about eosinophilic esophagitis. Yeah, so this is a really interesting condition. Um, I see a fair amount of it in my practice um, as a pediatrician, um, but I also have experienced this myself. I, I have EOE, um, and it was a, a really long diagnostic process. So it's associated with, especially for people who have lots of allergies, um, asthma, eczema. It's kind of part of, there's the atopic triad, we call it, which is those things. And then EOE seems to be another phenomenon that happens as well. So for me, it started when I was about seven or eight. And I, I actually remember very distinctly the first time I, I had an issue with this. Um, I was eating like just a piece of toast in class, uh, like lunchtime. And, uh, you know, I, I got some food kind of stuck in my throat a little bit. And I took a, a sip of water to try to wash it down. And it didn't wash down. And I, I choked and it was really scary. Um, what I, I think happens in these cases, and this is very re repeatable for me, is the food is physically lodged in your throat. And then when you drink water, the water can't push it and it backs up over the epiglottis and is actually you know, blocking your windpipe. And it's quite scary. Um, you know, so I complained uh, to my mom about it and we went to the doctor um, and they sent me for, I think, I mean, I was only seven or eight at the time. So, you know, my memory fails me a little bit. I didn't have as much medical knowledge back then, but I think we went for like a swallow study. Um, I remember, you know, swallowing something really chalky and them taking some x-rays and, um, they, they couldn't find anything. Um, but you know, over the years I just learned, okay, when I eat, uh, sticky foods, starchy foods, rice, French fries, uh, toast. I need to eat slow um, and uh, don't try to wash down with water or any liquid. Um, and I just kind of grew up understanding that. Um, when I was uh, working as a lifeguard with you, um, you know, I started to have the pain got really bad and it started to be this, this pain like, um, like GERD, you know, like reflux. And uh, it was, it got, became quite intense to eat just about anything. Um, and I went to go get more work up at that point. Um, and again, we just, they tried a couple different things. They tested me for H. pylori, um, which is a bacteria that a lot of people might've heard of that can cause stomach ulcers, but also a lot of kind of dyspepsia, like heartburn type symptoms. Um, and that obviously was negative. Um, they were even a little concerned about the possibility of, um, they were concerned about the possibility of uh, like a, a tumor. It was one of the possibilities. Um, so ultimately I ended up getting scoped. I had an endoscopic exam 
and uh, it's you know there's two types of endoscopic exams. You get your colonoscopy, and you got coming from the top too, like an upper GI, and um, they they didn't really see anything. And in in hindsight, I, I was actually a little disappointed with my specialists in that case because um, she didn't really seem familiar with EOE at all. Now I wasn't in medicine at that point, so. I didn't know anything was wrong, but when I, when I got to medical school, I started to understand more about the condition and I'll get to that. But when she did the scope, first of all, she should have taken biopsies of the esophagus and she didn't do that. She took them of like in the stomach and the duodenum, which is the small intestine just after the, the stomach, but she didn't do any of the esophagus. And I had told her that I was interested in going into medicine. So she was, she was really good in that she, you know, she talked me through everything as much as she understood it. And she even wrote on the, the pictures um, that she gave me, you know, like pictures of the esophagus saying normal. The interesting thing is, as I learned later in medical school, they were not normal. Like they were not only, a lot of times you don't see obvious, we call gross findings, gross meaning like macroscopic, obvious findings that you don't need a microscope for. But sometimes you do. There's two kind of interesting presentations. One of them is called tracheolization of the esophagus. It's where the esophagus literally looks like the trachea, the windpipe, in that it has these kind of rings that are characteristic of the windpipe. Now, I didn't have that one, but I did have this white speckling that is like if you type in eosinophilic esophagitis, like endoscopic findings or something, you will literally see these textbook pictures. Like I had those textbook pictures. So it was, a little, it was pretty disappointed. You know, everybody all doctors make mistakes at some point. So, you know, not it's, it is what it is, but um, a little disappointed uh, that it wasn't recognized at least to do biopsies. Cause I went another, I was 2011. I didn't get diagnosed till 2018. So almost a decade with more symptoms that was unnecessary. Um, and then, you know, I, I got to medical school. So let's see, probably, I think I was doing pathology in 2015 or something like that. And I took a look, we were, we were going through all the different systems and we got to Houston esophagitis and that's when it dawned on me. I was, I was studying for this material. I'm like, I have this, I have that, I have that. And you know, I, you want to be careful because it's like, you're just learning. You don't want to try start diagnosing everybody in your family and diagnosing yourself. And, you know, but I mean, it was classic. I had everything, you know, the, all the features, all of the things I had eosinophilia. That's when, you have these certain blood cells that are in your body that are associated with allergies as well as parasitic infections, but these days mostly allergies, they were elevated. I, I already have asthma, I already have allergies. Um, I get this impaction sim symptoms. That's when food, that's the word for food getting stuck in your throat. Um, you know, certain foods seem to trigger it, and that's classic for EOE. Um, and especially starchy foods kind of getting stuck. So I had, as well as I went back to go look at the images and that's when I saw that I had the classic findings and she didn't, she hadn't done the biopsy. The, the way you finally diagnose it is you have to do a biopsy of the esophagus and you see, as the name may suggest, eosinophilic esophagitis that, that translate into English as into um, inflammation, the itis is inflammation of the esophagus of an eosinophilic type. That means there's eosinophils, those cell types, the allergic cell types I was telling you about that are infiltrating into the esophagus way more than there normally should be. Um, 
and that is uh, that's that's how you diagnose us, the, the gold standard. Um, so it wasn't until 2018, you know, it's kind of settled down into my intern year. I was in one place for more than like a month at a time um, that I could get the scope. And finally, I got the scope and I insisted with the, the GI doctor, like, you have to biopsy my esophagus. Um, and he did. And I was diagnosed with it. Now that the management is a little tricky. Um, it's a it's a relatively new disease, relatively new phenomenon. Um, you know, why I think it's probably forgivable for the, my first GI doctor to have not have thought of it. When we were doing our research for this episode, I read that the first illustrations of the disease were in like 1970s, but it didn't actually get recognized as a condition until the nineties. So that was after you had seen your GI doctor at first, presumably. Yeah. Yeah. The very first time, uh, if I was only like seven or eight, we're talking like, I guess, what's that 93 or something like that so you know and it's and especially i mean it's it's largely a pediatric condition you know i it's gonna we're gonna see it more in adults as we we age but it's you know the whole atopic thing is is becoming more prevalent it's not just it's not one of these situations where you know some people with think about like autism they think well maybe it was always there it was just unrecognized no, allergies are actually increasing in prevalence. It's not just something that wasn't recognized before. And likely it's the case with eosinophilic esophagitis. It's something that is actually increasing in prevalence, which is a really interesting question as to why. There's a lot of different theories and we don't have enough time to get into all of them, but um, you know, it is, it is becoming more prevalent. So what, what we're seeing is I think pediatricians probably have a, a, a much better uh, understanding and appreciation and, and they're thinking about it more because we are seeing it a lot more in kids. And as time goes on, I think adult doctors are going to kind of catch up a little bit. Once, once those, those kids age, grow up, like I have, um, I mean, more or less <laughs> and, uh, you know, and start seeing the adult doctors and they're, they're not going to have any choice, but to kind of become familiar with it. So as I was saying about the management, um, it's, it's tricky and somewhat demanding. Um, what you really need to do is avoid the triggers. The common triggers are probably things you'd already think about. They're common allergens. Um, so it's like dairy, uh, nuts, eggs, seafood, um, soy to a certain extent. Not everybody is allergic to the, to everything, but, and it's not, the interesting thing is it's not technically an allergy. Um, it's more of a, a sensitivity. Um, you know, and that can be really tricky for people because you don't always react immediately. Like with allergies, you typically react right away, but with EOE, it's more of a buildup, right? It's every time you're exposed to that food, more of those eosinophils are getting drawn into the esophagus and causing problems. Um, and it's not usually the foods that, that you're, you're experiencing symptoms with. So or at least the ones that get stuck. So like starchy foods, like the rice and the potatoes, um, you know, those aren't really foods that are causing the problems. They're just kind of the symptom. They're the foods that they're sticky and so they get stuck. Um, but for the most part, they're not the problem food. So those would be the foods people think, okay, I need to avoid those to prevent the progression of this disease. Yeah. But no, you're avoiding those just to uh, prevent the symptoms to prevent the progression of the disease, it's a whole other list of foods that you need to be careful of. Right. 
and if you're and if you're careful with your foods and you chew slowly you know um which can be tough sometimes when you're really hungry but uh you know those foods shouldn't be a problem and you're a busy resident who has not many lunch breaks and is on your feet all day well and the food is just so good i mean who can really blame me <laughs> but but regardless so yeah you, you want to avoid those those big triggers the interesting thing is it's even even foods for some people it could even be chicken and beef you know basically the interesting thing is it's like any source of protein could potentially be a trigger um you know that's i actually even react flax i've i've realized um which is not a typical source of protein that most people think about but you know i'm always looking for alternative like milks and stuff like that because i can't have dairy and flax milk has been a problem for me so um that can be really really challenging um for the people who are the most severe they actually could go on to an elemental diet. That means that they go on these really expensive formulas and the only thing, their, their whole diet is just this formula. It's a complete liquid diet. And these formulas, they call, they're called elemental because the proteins, proteins are made up of amino acids. Amino acids are the building block and proteins are once they're all assembled into various shapes that makes a protein. Um, so these elemental formulas have been broken down with enzymes to just amino acids. That's it. Just that they've done all the digestion for you. It's literally just amino acids and they're really expensive to make. And they're really expensive to buy like for uh, like a single kind of can or whatever. It's about 60 or 70 bucks. And you have to imagine how many of those you're going to need a day. Like the cans are like, it's like a can of Coke basically. Um, you know, so it's, that can be really expensive and it's, it can be hard, at least in, in America where I'm working right now, it can be hard to get insurance companies to cover that. I have no idea what that's like in Canada. You know, we still don't have pharmaceutical coverage. So I, I'm not sure what that would be like for people in Canada. Um, so I, I'm thankfully I'm not there. Um, I've been pretty good about avoiding the foods that are, are triggers and that seems to, to be doing it. There's a couple other options you can do too. A good number of people are responsive to proton pump inhibitors, PPIs. You might have heard of some of the medications like Pertonix or Pantoprazole, uh, um, Isomeprazole, Omeprazole. Um, those are our options. And what's interesting is, I mean, the, the way those drugs work, at least for reflux, is they basically kill your body's uh, acid production. Um, we don't think that the acid that stopping the acid production is what helps the EOE, but we actually don't know the mechanism. Um, we just know that for a good percentage of people, it helps. So I was really fortunate. I, I can take even a quarter of the daily dose that's normally used. And that seems to be doing the trick for me. Um, I noticed after like three days of forgetting my dose, I noticed some of the pains kind of coming back. Um, and there's one, one other option um, is steroids. Uh, steroids are a uh, medicine that are really great at stopping inflammation, but they, they uh, don't, they have a lot of side effects, you know, that can lead to crazy weight gain. They can um, cause a lot of hormone imbalances. Um, they can thin out your bones, especially for women who are getting a little bit older. Um, you know, so there's, there's steroids are not a great option long-term. So you, Oral steroids are one option, like, but there's, there's some kind of light that's for like the most extreme cases, but there's kind of like a, a happy medium. So for people out there who have asthma, 
you might have heard that like it's a really good idea to use a space chamber. Um, so that the reason that you use space chamber with asthma is because if you don't, you're just kind of shooting it in the back of your throat and like half you're halving the dose, like half the dose kind of just gets stuck in the back of your throat and you end up swallowing it. Um, and the other half gets inhaled. When you use the space chamber, you get the full dose and inhales. So that's, that's really good advice for an asthmatic, but for EOE, you can actually just, just do it the wrong way. You can, you can just spray it in the back of your throat and swallow it. And it's a much lower dose. Um, it, uh, it doesn't, we don't think it has the same systemic side effects as like having like the steroid slurry that, um, we do in extreme cases. And, uh, you know, if you're somebody like me who has asthma and EOE, you can just kind of split the difference and just, <laughs> just do it the wrong way. You get half the dose in your lungs and you get half the dose in your, in your uh, esophagus. And it just kind of helps a little bit. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a really interesting condition. I really think we're going to be seeing more and more of it um, as time goes on. Um, and hopefully we can get more treatments and have a better understanding of why it's increasing in prevalence. But um, I certainly in my practice, uh, I always keep it in the back of my mind. It's a, a situation that's near and dear to my heart. And, and I don't want anybody else to go, you know, what is it, 20, 30 years before they get a diagnosis that I mean, at one point when I, when I actually got diagnosed in 2018, I was losing weight because I couldn't eat anything. That's insane. It took like 25 years for you to get diagnosed. It was, it was, it was rough. I mean, there were periods of time when it was okay, but I, I was in so much, I cannot tell you how much pain I was in, in 2018 when I finally, uh, just got the diagnosis done. I mean, I, I think I lost like 10, 20 pounds in the span of a couple months because I just couldn't, I couldn't eat hurt so much. So I'm really, I'm really thankful to finally have an answer. And, and I definitely want, you know, any providers out there uh, and, and parents to, to keep this in mind. If, if they hear some of those kind of, to me, that the thing that really perks my ears is, is the food getting stuck in the throat, you know, especially like starchy foods, food getting stuck in the throat um, or feeling like there's like a, a ball of food, you know, that globus sensation is what we call that. Um, especially in a kid who already has allergies, asthma, stuff like that. I think, you know, they should, I would, I would be scoping that kid. Now I have a question for you. You said that oftentimes it's linked to a food sensitivity and not a true food allergy. I'm curious if you have any opinions on food sensitivity testing or IgG testing as opposed to IgE testing. Hmm. Yeah. So, well, in the context, I mean, we can talk about in the context of EOE and not in EOE. Um, so that's, that's a really good question. I'm, I'm glad you brought up because I forgot to mention this, but allergy testing for EOE is not very effective. Um, it's good for other types of allergies, like, you know, true um, histamine allergies. Those are the classic allergies you think where you have like stomach aches or hives, you know, or anaphylactic allergies. That, that's a pretty good type of testing in those contexts, but EOE, um, we don't fully understand the mechanism, but it doesn't mediate by the, the histamine pathway um, with the, the hive pathway. And so it doesn't correlate really well with, with the skin prick testing or the blood testing. Um, sometimes it, there's a bit of a correlation, but again, it's because the trigger foods for EOE are very similar to the trigger foods for, for your classic allergies. Um, so it might even just be coincidence. You know, they might actually be in my case, I'm allergic to milk and I have a, a trigger for EOE, right? 
It's also, um, you know, one thing while we're on that, it's also tricky for, you know, people like when you go to the restaurant, for example, um, you know, because I think a lot of a lot of people, not just the restaurant, but just in life, I think a lot of people, right, you think about an allergy, you think, well, there's an immediate response, right? And, and let's, let me give a, a hypothetical. Let's say I go to a restaurant and I tell the waiter my allergies. And let's say there's a mistake, intentional or unintentional, and I end up ingesting something on the list of things I've said I want to avoid. You know, if they, if they then see that I didn't immediately keel over and die or have, or complain about it, or even seem aware that I had that mistake, you know, then they're going to, they're going to think, oh, another guy is making it up, you know, uh, you know, and it's, and, and it's not just the, the waiter or whatever. I, I'm just kind of, you know, using him as an example, but, but, you know, or just enlarge even yourself, you know, it makes you doubt yourself, right? You know, if you're, if sometimes it seems like you're having problems with the food and sometimes you're not, um, you know, that's one of the, the kind of insidious and tricky parts about this disease is that you don't get that immediate feedback that this food is the problem. You, you have to kind of commit to, um, you know, removing a food for a couple of weeks and seeing how your symptoms do. When we start out, when we diagnose somebody with EOE, we just kind of do like a five food elimination diet and see how they do. And we just remove kind of the five top EOE culprits. And then if patients are so inclined, you know, if there's something they really want to try again, we'll add something in one thing at a time. Um, you know, if you really like eggs and you want to see if eggs are the problem, all right, well, let's, we'll take everything out, all five things. And then if you really love eggs, let's just, just try adding the eggs back in and, and see how that goes. I mean, some, some, at least in the research contexts or some very aggressive doctors, they actually will do this elimination diet and then scope them after every food that gets added back in, which is kind of scary. I can see that in the research setting a little bit, but you have to understand that you're, for most people, almost everybody with a scope, you're going to be anesthetized. You're going to be exposed to anesthesia. And, you know, most people do really well with anesthesia. I'm not trying to scare people away if they need anesthesia, but any procedure has a risk. Even without the anesthesia, there's a risk of the scope. The scope is not, most people, again, do really well. Rarely, it it creates a damage to the esophagus. It can, it can perforate it, meaning it puts a hole in it, which can be a life-threatening illness, life-threatening emergency. Um, same thing with the anesthesia. Sometimes people react to anesthesia and, and it can kill them. So to imagine doing repeat scopes after every food that you try, that scares me a little bit. Um, I personally, I'd rather just, just try eggs for two weeks and see how things go. That's a really great question though about the, the skin testing. Um, now, as far as the, like uh, food sensitivities and and non EOE type conditions, um, you know, even for allergies, skin testing and the blood testing have limitations. Um, they're better at looking at food sensitivities um, than for allergies than for EOE. Um, they're not perfect, and and I think it's really important. I really want people to keep in mind that. Just because something isn't uh, a quote unquote true allergy or it's not um, EOE or whatever, we don't have a medical explanation for it. You know, um, it, you know, you just have to, I think it's important to listen to your body. And if you if your body, if it feels like you're having a problem with a food, there's nothing wrong with avoiding it. 
if you want to. And I, I would like us to move away. You know, I, I get why sometimes waiters, for example, again, I'm just kind of throwing waiters under the bus here, um, can get frustrated, you know, with all these restrictions, and so, especially when it feels like some people are just making it up or whatever. But at the end of the day, I guess my feeling is like, you know, you're, you're paying to eat something. And I, I get that that can make your job challenging. But I think, you know, it's reasonable to know what you're putting in your body and, and to want to have a certain degree of say on that. And, and maybe it is just a preference. It could be a religious preference. It could be a personal preference. It could be a food intolerance. And, and maybe sometimes people do get it medically wrong, but there's nothing wrong with that. You know, uh, it's okay to just have a preference about what you're putting in your body. And I think, you know, within reason that there's nothing wrong with trying to um, accommodate that and, and not shame people for it. Yeah. And you kind of brought up another topic that I'm glad you mentioned because we mentioned it on our last episode as well, too, about exactly why we're doing this podcast is to illuminate areas in medicine that maybe are a little bit mysterious or misunderstood. Because once you've seen a case or once you have at least heard of a case, you're way more likely to keep it on your differential list and not miss it the next time. And Yeah. And we really want to focus on the rare, strange and unusual in this podcast, the things that, okay, yeah, maybe it's not very common, but let's not let it go misdiagnosed for 20 plus years. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I also want to encourage any, you know, um, non-provider listeners as well. You know, sometimes we have these clusters of symptoms that we don't have an explanation for right now. Right. You know, I think some there's some classic ones out there that, you know, we, we talk about in medicine, like fibromyalgia. I don't think we have a really good explanation for fibromyalgia, but it does seem to be a an, an, uh, symptom cluster, right? That, that happens so consistently. It's hard to just chalk it up to somebody who's like a little bit um, eccentric or something, uh, you know, and, and it can be really discouraging as a patient when you feel like your doctor or provider, whatever it is, um, you know, maybe in their frustration of not being able to help you, I'm trying to give a lot of benefit of the doubt here, you know, is giving off this vibe, like, you know, you're making it up or, or it's all in your head or, and, and that can be really disheartening as, as a patient, you know, again, I'm going back to my experience of just, I didn't feel like anybody said I was making it up, but I also felt frustrated that, like these doctors who are supposed to know everything, you know, can't help me here. You know, that was really frustrating. So, um, you know, I just, you know, I just want to tell the listeners have heart, you know, and, and just remember that like, as much as it TV makes it seem like uh, doctors know so much uh, providers know so much. I think that if we could look at, if we, if there was like a, a pie chart of all there is to know about the human body, like literally everything there is to know, everything God knows about the human body, you know, doctors know a tiny sliver and individual doctors know even less. That's like, I'm saying doctors as a community, but then there's also like individual doctors, right? And they all have, everybody has knowledge gaps. Every professional, every expert, Einstein has knowledge gaps. And, uh, and it's, it's important to keep that in mind. So don't, I just don't want anybody to take it personally when it seems like, you know, doctors not able to help them or even if it feels like they're, they're feeling unheard. 
Yeah, really great points brought up and especially about fibro and other conditions that we don't really fully understand yet. And stay tuned yeah. for another episode on fibro because it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good yeah. to under to acknowledge that, yeah, we make mistakes. I feel like we're in this constant cycle of education and we're always learning still and discovering new things. So important to realize that and understand. Absolutely. And you've sort of illustrated this union in my mind that I would love to see medicine go. You know, you're a medical doctor. I'm a naturopathic doctor. Emma is a fourth year naturopathic doctor student. And I think in the world, there's this idea that you either see a medical doctor or a naturopathic doctor, one or the other, you don't have a choice. And when we're talking about conditions, especially like EOE, if you have already seen your medical doctor and you have done the scope, if you've done these higher order tests and investigations, and you still feel like you don't have answers, that's oftentimes when people then come to see a naturopathic doctor. And I think most people now realize that elimination and challenge diets are sort of a naturopathic doctor's bread and butter. We do it for more conditions than just EOE, but after everything you've just described, we seem like the perfect practitioner to help pair care with the medical doctor. So the medical, yeah, the medical doctor can rule out, like you were talking about things like a tumor mass effect, the scary and sinister, and the naturopathic doctor can then take the time to do that elimination do the challenge, like record and watch a diet diary with a patient and help them improve their symptoms alongside the care of the medical doctor. Absolutely. And, you know, we're learning so much about how much our diets and like microbiome, for example, can really impact surprising areas of medicine. There's, there's some research suggesting that Parkinson's and, and other autoimmune conditions might have links to our microbiome. I can't get into details because I don't know much more than just that one line, but that's fascinating to me, you know? Um, and I also want to say, I, I, it just, what you were saying made me think of when I was getting, uh, I was participating in medical school interviews at UBC. Um, there was one question I had, and I, I don't think I gave them the answer that they wanted, but um, they asked me kind of about my opinions about complementary medicine. And, and my true feeling is that, you know, I understand why different providers might have almost like a territorial kind of stance on these issues. Um, But the way I see it is maybe an an area for improvement in medicine, you know, an area of uh, rather than getting territorial, maybe we can think, look, look inwards and think, how can we kind of win some hearts and minds here. Um, or maybe we can't and we should welcome other practitioners to, to help help out or, or vice versa. Um, you know, if you have a patient who's really truly feeling unheard um, or you just, you don't have an answer, uh, you know, maybe there's, there's some room for improvement. How can we make patients feel more heard? Or maybe we just, the time restrictions that are placed on doctors, you know, a lot of doctors feel huge pressure to not go over 15 minutes per patient um, for financial reasons. Um, you know, some practices even kind of almost enforce that to a certain extent. You know, I think um, if that's how we're, we've decided we're going to make a traditional medicine, well, then what's so bad about having other practitioners who operate in a different way? I certainly don't like it when I go to my doctor and I only get 15 minutes. 
<laughs> yes, we definitely have the luxury of time in naturopathic medicine where our appointments yeah. are generally an hour long. Yeah. And I feel like we could go on about this for days. And Absolutely. what I really liked is you called it complementary medicine and not alternative. So that was. Right. Yeah, it really should, should be a team effort in my view. There uh, is only medicine. These distinctions yeah. are human made. All right. there is is medicine. And if our goal is to make the patient feel better, working collaboratively together to get that end goal is what's best for us as professionals and what's best for the patient. We all, yeah, we all have the same goal. That's, I think that's really, really important to keep in mind. I also, you know, I just want one last thing. Um, it, as much as it was really frustrating to go through this long, long process of getting diagnosed, in some ways I love it. Um, you know, it, it was very challenging, but I feel like it also imparted on me um, kind of an empathy and compassion, I hope, for not just patients with EOE, but also patients really struggling with getting an answer, right? You know, after going decades without my own answer and being in a lot of pain, um, I think it makes it harder. You know, I think some doctors can come off as dismissive when people have a condition that they, or a presentation they don't immediately have an answer for. Um, you know, and I, I, I like to think, I hope, you know, maybe some patient out there is listening to this and be like, well, actually, <laughs> But I, I, I hope, you know, that, that it's made me a little, a little more empathetic towards those kind of situations. Yeah. And I've had a conversation in the past where, for instance, let's use your fibro example again. And yeah, like Emma said, stay tuned. That's in the future podcast yeah. episodes for sure. Huge topic. Um, a lot of times what I'll hear, or at least one time in particular, what I've heard is, okay, well, the treatment for fibro is spending an hour with the patient. That is treatment for them. Having someone to talk to for an hour, that will make them feel better. And they were saying it almost in a condescending manner, like as if, well, it's the patient's fault. They can't just feel better after 15 minutes. And I'm like, well, then if that is the treatment, great, send all of your fibro patients to NDs. We will spend the hour with them. That's fine. We don't mind doing that. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, that's the, the, the education we got for it's changed names, but, um, with the DSM four versus DSM five, but for the somatic symptom disorder or somatoform, um, that's, that's the, the name that, that the DSM gives for somebody who has, and they stress in our education, real symptoms, but that don't necessarily have an obvious biological explanation. Um, you know, and that's, that's, that's a tricky one. Cause it could mean that there, it's not that we is, there might be a biological explanation that we just don't know about yet, but you know, and the way I always try to talk to patients about this one, it is tricky because you don't want to, I, I often just come out and say like, I, I do not want you to think that I am saying that this is in, in your head, that it's not real. Cause that's not what I'm saying. You are clearly experiencing these symptoms, obviously. Um, but, you know, and I try to take kind of a holistic approach, right? I mean, I think we can all agree that the mind plays a big role in our health, right? I mean, you look at broken heart syndrome, somebody loses a spouse and then months later they die. They basically, you know, and that happens often enough that we recognize as a syndrome. They basically give up on the will to live. And he, when you first hear that, you're like, how is that possible that the mind could just basically cause the body to shut down? That's an extreme example, but there's, I mean, the, 
every, I think almost everybody can recognize the impact of constant stress on, on your physical health, right? That we, I think we intuitively think the mind is a separate being from the body, right? Maybe it's because of the concept of the soul or I don't know why, but I just feel like obviously they're not. And so when you get a patient like this, I feel like it's really important to have the discussion and just remind that like, Hey, look, we can treat both. We can look at the biological aspects here. And it's also important to deal with the, the mental, the emotional, the psychological, right? There's no shame in looking at both. And, and I hope that helps. I, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with fibromyalgia, so I hope you don't ask me anything about it because it's not really a pediatric condition. Um, I've never had a patient come in for me with fibromyalgia, but, but I think there are a lot of, there are a lot of kind of other kind of comparable presentations or syndromes that, that where that's an important discussion to have. Or oftentimes just autoimmune disease in general, right? Because they are so vague and unspecific. Yeah. And it's more of a group or a constellation of symptoms than a, I'm going to do this test. Like you said, with EOE, the diagnostic gold standard is finding eosinophils in the esophagus. A lot of these autoimmune conditions, there is no gold standard test. We are doing it based off this grouping of vague, nonspecific symptoms, which we've talked about in episode one. I think we talked about it again in episode three, again, this like these are the type of people who often present in naturopathic medical offices because they feel like they either haven't been heard or they haven't got the answers they're looking for. And they're looking to work outside of the box. So true. And that, you know, the unique thing about pediatrics, I feel like it's necessary to say is, you know, when you're, when you're just, when you're one-on-one with an adult patient and, and you, um, you know, that's, that's two people you're that are a part of that conversation. But when you're, when you got a kid, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, you're, you're not just dealing with the emotional layers uh, for, the, for the kid, but also mom or dad, right? I mean, I think the most, and I always say this to my parents is you can only ever be as happy as your sickest child, right? If, if you got five kids who are perfectly healthy and you got one kid who's just miserable, no good parent can be happy about the five kids who are healthy. They, they're, they have to focus on that kid who's really struggling and, and you can't, it's hard to, to, to move on. I mean, it, it might be, if it was happening to yourself, you could just all like tough it out or whatever, you know, <laughs> um, you can't tough it out when your kid is suffering, you know, and that it can create this, this loop, this, uh, vicious cycle where, you know, the parent has a lot of anxiety and it, that anxiety can impart onto the child. And so it's just becomes this, this, um, this thing that you really have to find some way to address. You, you can't just focus on your patient and as a pediatrician, you have to focus on the parents' well-being as well. Wow. I mean, we entered this episode thinking we were just going to talk about this strange, rare condition, which is increasing in prevalence, as you mentioned. Yeah. yeah. And here really we talked more about the status of medicine. It's like systems-based stuff. Yes, in 2021. And I'm here for it. That is why we are doing this podcast. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. This was so illuminating. And I hope all of the practitioners who are listening have EOE in the back of their mind and even any patients who are listening. Again, we're not a podcast that's offering medical advice or diagnoses, but if you are suffering, please reach out to your healthcare practitioner and see if this diagnosis might be what's troubling you if it hasn't already been considered. Thank you so much. This was awesome. 
Thank you both so much for inviting me. I, uh, I look forward to maybe some future podcasts. Yes, for sure. Stay tuned. We can't wait to have you back. I can already tell this is going to be a top episode. So you just heard our interview with Dr. Jesse Goodall, and we hope you found it as interesting as we found it doing the interview. We had all of these questions lined up and we didn't even have to ask them. Dr. Goodall covered them all in our discussion. It was wonderful to hear him speak. He is such a good science and medical communicator. Yeah, I think it's really awesome to tie in personal experience with the art of medicine. And I think there's something to be said about when something happens to you, it's still always on your mind for when you see something similar come up in practice. So stay tuned next week where we come up with another rare, strange, and unusual condition. And next week, I'm going to bet most of you have not heard of this condition. We're going to keep it a surprise. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. See you next week for episode six. See you later. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Spotify, Google, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and YouTube at Probably Not Lupus. Probably Not Lupus is written, recorded, edited, and produced by us alone in our bedrooms. (laughs) I love that.